Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Dr. Tony Fauci may not have been universally known to Americans before the COVID-19 virus hit, but he sure is a household name now. The nation's top infectious disease fighter has become a valued and trusted source for vital information about the virus, but also a political target, sometimes even from the White House. But Fauci, who I got to know in my years in Washington, also has an amazing personal and professional story that is not as well known. So I sat down with him today, not just to talk about the virus, but about his life and his life's work. Here's that conversation. Dr. Fauci, it's great to see you again. I'm honored that you're joining us. I thought you'd be in your backyard throwing pitches right now, (laughs) getting ready to throw the first pitch out at the opening of the Major League season tonight. Yeah, the pressure's on, David. I'm getting a lot of emails from people telling me, don't bounce it, don't do this, don't do that. A lot of pressure. Let me tell you, uh, when Barack Obama was a senator, he was invited to throw the first pitch out at the American League championships, which were on the South Side at a White Sox game. And uh, he snuck away and asked the Cubs if he could throw from the mound at Wrigley Field, which was empty, for just this reason. He didn't want to bounce the pitch in. He ended up throwing a parabola, but that was better than a <laughs> that was better than a than a bounce. Hey, you know, I, there's so much to ask you about the story that is consuming us right now, which is the virus. But before we do, you've become such a presence in all of this, probably more than you'd like, but people don't know all that much about you and, and your story. And I want to spend some time on that first, if we could, before we get to COVID nineteen. You're from an immigrant family, both your parents from Italy. My grandparents, my grandparents. Your, your grandparents, I meant, right. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I meant, your grandparents. And your dad was a pharmacist? Correct, correct. And you grew up above the family store, as it I were. I did. Everybody worked there? Yeah, yeah, my sister and I worked behind the counter and through my elementary school and even high school years for a bit, uh, I delivered prescriptions on my Schwinn bicycle. To the yeah. uh, back then, you could call up the pharmacy and say, "Could you deliver it to the house?" And you actually had some young, young boy like me delivering the prescriptions. My first job was at uh, delivering for the First Avenue Pharmacy in Manhattan, so ah. I had that gig. There is something about this immigrant drive, though. You're a you're you're an indefatigable person. Everybody notices your work habits. Those obviously were formed back then. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, uh, David. My my family, my father, I can remember, and my mother, but my father particularly, was very much involved in 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 as a pharmacist and being a public servant. You know, back then, the pharmacist, they'd call him doc, would be the psychiatrist, the doctor, yeah. the friend, the yeah. confidant of people in the neighborhood who didn't have access to be able to sit down and talk to somebody who was sympathico with their physical and mental ills. And that was kind of ingrained in me at the time that I was a young boy. And that's kind of uh, permeated the things that I've done over the, throughout my school years. And then in my deciding to become a physician and even up to the things that I'm doing today. So I think it does, I think you're correct. It does date back to when I was a young boy. Because not only were you doing the, the work at the pharmacy, but you were an ACE student. And to the shock of many, you were also an ACE athlete. (laughs) <laughs> and and more than that, the point guard and captain of your high school basketball team. Indeed. Now, I know that basketball players are taller now, but still a five foot seven point guard, high school point guard, you had to be pretty feisty 
back in the uh, day. I was actually. <laughs> I, I, as I always joke around, my father is even, he's about an inch and a half well, or more shorter than I am. And he was, when he went to New Utrecht High School in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, was the New York City public school athletic champ in the 220 and the 440-yard dash. He was very good. So <laughs> I, I inherited two things from him, David. I inherited his speed, <laughs> but unfortunately, I inherited his height. <laughs> and so it made, it made up. That's better than uh, slow and short. <laughs> right, so exactly. you should be grateful. So I compensated for my lack of height and being really a very fast point guard. You also, just on the feistiness scale, were a New York Yankees fan as a kid in Brooklyn in the right. 1950s when that rivalry was ferocious. It was. Like, how'd you, how'd you get away with that? First of all, why were you a Yankees fan and how'd you get away with that? You know, I think I was because my father, who was born in Manhattan, in Little Italy, was a New York Yankee fan. And when I was a very young boy, he took me a couple of times to Yankee Stadium uh, when Joe DiMaggio was playing in his last couple of years yeah. at the time. And that was magical for me to see Joe D playing. And you know, it was just incredible. So growing up in Brooklyn, I think people don't fully appreciate that. There are a substantial proportion of Brooklynites who are actually Yankee fans. And that was kind of the thing that we did as kids, seven, eight, nine years old, We'd be arguing forever. Who is better, <laughs> Mickey Mantle or Duke or Snyder? Duke Snyder, yeah. Uh, Roy Campanella or Yogi Berra, Pee Wee Reese <laughs> or Phil Rizzuto. It was really fun. It was really fun. You went to a Jesuit high school, commuted to Manhattan, I'm sure at some length every day. Yeah, it was over an hour. To get to school, yeah. And, uh, and you also went to a Jesuit college, uh, Holy Cross. How did the Jesuits shape you? You know, David, I think substantially because... I had mentioned that this idea of of public service and not worrying about monetary, financial, or material things was kind of ingrained in me as 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 a, as a child. The Jesuit spirit is is service for others, uh, and it is um, a very uh, uh, important theme that you learned just by the natural osmosis of being in that environment. It was it was really, I think, a very important. Uh, formative uh, it, component of my life. Not only the idea of service for others, but the 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 um, academic rigor uh, and the scientific adherence to scientific principles that they instilled in you. Even when you were a 13-year-old kid going into your first day in high school, you got that impression that, you know, uh, the thing I learned, I, I often talk about it when I when I speak is, the idea of precision of thought and economy of expression. You know, know exactly what you're talking about and say it in as few words as possible. There's a Jesuit pope now. Are you still a practicing Catholic? Is that still something that... Not not really. I'm, I'm more of just, as I often say, I'm more of a humanist than someone who is wedded to a formal uh, um, organization. I mean, I still identify myself as Catholic for sure. But but I I I can I'm less concerned about the organization of the Catholic Church than I am about the principles that I learned from from a group like the Jesuits. Although he's an inspiring figure, you must see some yeah. of that Je Jesuit yeah. in him. They trained him well. <laughs> <laughs> you always said you said you always knew you wanted to be a doctor. Right. At what age did you come to that realization? You know, I I think it was um, probably. <laughs> It was when I realized that I wasn't going to make it as a basketball player. <laughs> I think, I think that was it. I figured I, I got to do. When you topped out at five seven, you said, yeah, I, yeah. I, "I feel like I could be a great doctor." Yeah, I, that's exactly right. So you know what it was, David. I was always very interested, and it was kindled in me in high school uh, because a lot of the Jesuit training is classics. You know, Greek, Latin, Romance language, a bit of philosophy, and I was always very attracted to the humanistic aspect of education, thinking about history and the classics. But I also found out in high school, uh, probably in my junior year, that I liked science and was very good uh, at it. So I figured, what is the best way to combine this issue of classics, humanity, uh, understanding civilizations, at the same time as doing something that's scientific? And 
the perfect intertwining of that to me was to be a physician. So as soon as I realized that, to me, it was an open and shut case that that's what I wanted to do. And as you mentioned earlier, your dad as a pharmacist was sort of a demi-physician uh, yeah. he, for the people in the neighborhood. You went off to Holy Cross, and in the summers, you worked on a construction crew. Right. And one of the places that you worked on uh, as a construction worker was the new library at the Cornell Medical College. And you had an encounter there that I've I've read about when you slipped into the auditorium there in a break and just was taking it all in and a security guy came up to you and you guys had this really kind of meaningful exchange. <laughs> yeah, it was because at that point I was, I had applied to and was getting ready. I had not been accepted yet, but I wanted to go to Cornell Medical School all the time. That was my top first choice. So I walked into the hallway uh, just to look around because I was awe, you know, awestruck by by the school that I wanted to go to. And I happened to be working on the construction gang that was building the library. And I was really caked up with, con I was, a, I was a, it was a, called a mason tender, which means you're the assistant to the bricklayer. So you get all, you get all kinds of, of uh, concrete and, and cement all over you. I was a mess. I yeah, so I'd love on. to see you walk in, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so I had a hard helmet on, I had my jeans on, and I had my boots. And I walked in, and the guy came over to me, says, listen, Sonny, call me Sonny, <laughs> listen, Sonny, you're all dirty, so would you please get out of the hallway? And I looked at him with a straight face, and I said, you know, sir, I was very polite to him. I said, you know, sir, you, you know, one of these days, I'm going to be a student in this school, and he looked at me with a straight face and he says, yeah, and one of these days I'm going to be police commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of you was right, it turns out. In fact, you, uh, you, you excelled there. You finished first in your class there. But your linking up with the NIH was not really entirely voluntary. There were reasons you went to the NIH that had more to do with the history of the time than right. your own desire to be involved there. Yeah. No, it was. It was, the, it was the Vietnam War, and we all got drafted automatically. In fact, the entire class was drafted, as I was. And in my senior year, uh, a recruiter, he was a major in the U.S. Marine Corps, and he came into our class, and you could tell how old I am, because in the class there were 84 men and two women. <laughs> and he looked up at us and he said, you know, uh, at the end of this year, every one of you, except the two young women in the back there, are going to either be in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, or the Public Health Service. So just decide what you want to do, give a priority, and see where you go. So I was interested in infectious diseases, and I knew that the two places for infectious diseases was the NIH and the CDC. So I put down Public Health Service first, Navy second, Army third, and then Air Force. And as it turned out, in my application to the, to the NIH, I was accepted. So that served as my military term for three, I, for, it was a three-year commitment that you had to make. Why were you interested in infectious diseases? Why did that attract you? You know, there's something about it, David, that it, it's, it's very um, um, definitive. You know, infectious diseases, they either kill you or you get better from them. And there is a very good chance that you can cure them and or prevent them with a vaccine. So there was something kind of neat about that that I, I wanted to get involved with a serious disease, not a disease that was not particularly threatening. And when you look at the history of serious diseases, malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, which hadn't even occurred yet when I decided to go into infectious diseases, it just was a natural fit to me. You know, one of the things that interests me about you is that, and you know, my wife, Susan, is very deeply involved in the uh, in epilepsy research because right. our d daughter, Lauren, has had a terrible time with epilepsy. And one of the things that we noticed when we began that work was how disengaged researchers sometimes are from patients. But you've, throughout your whole career, including to this day, you've been both a clinician and, and a research scientist by your own insistence. Right. Why, why is that? Because that's my identity, David. I mean, of all the things that I've done in different arenas since then, my primary identity that I feel very comfortable in that skin is as a physician. And my training and my perspective 
as a physician influences everything I do. I mean, right now, you know, we're in the middle of a very serious pandemic outbreak. Um, there are real people who are getting sick and there are real people who are dying. And, 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 and unless you can really feel that, you know, in your instinct, uh, all of your physician instincts, it really makes you look upon the outbreak in a different way. It was certainly that way with HIV. My entire career has been influenced over the last almost 40 years, 39 years with HIV. And HIV in the beginning, and even to this point, I was knee deep in taking care of very, very sick patients, which is something that I, I really value as a life experience. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You read a, a CDC report back in June of 1981 that caught your attention, and it spoke about this mysterious form of pneumonia that had, had afflicted five gay men. Why, why did that draw your attention, and how did you know at that moment, because you started writing about how this will explode, how did you know at that moment that HIV-AIDS was going to be the scourge that it turned out to be? You know, David, at that moment, interestingly, I did not. When I saw the five patients, the five young men from Los Angeles who developed uh, pneumocystis pneumonia, which you only see in immunosuppressed patients, I, I, I was puzzled. I thought it was a fluke. Like, how come, curiously, all five men, all gay, who are otherwise well? And I thought it was possibly some drug or whatever it was, and I had this inkling that maybe it was something else. One month later... The first report was in June of 1981. One month later, in July of 1981, a second report came out, this time of 23 men, curiously all gay men from L.A., San Francisco, and New York City, who presented with the strange disease of Kaposi-sarcoma, pneumocystis pneumonia. That was the point, David, where I describe it very accurately that I got goosebumps because I said, oh, my God. This is a new disease and it's an infectious disease because there's no way that 23 gay men have gotten whatever it is this infection is that's destroying their immune system unless it was an infectious disease and almost certainly it was sexually transmitted because that was the beginning of the sexual revolution among gay men. And it was at that point that I made a, a critical and life-changing decision that I would stop what I was doing, uh, and which was quite successful, a career, you know, for the previous eight years at the NIH, and devote all of my energy to looking into this bizarre new disease. And that's what I did, much to the dismay of my mentors, who thought I was throwing away a promising career on a disease that would soon just go away because it was just a curiosity, when obviously it was not. Let me ask you about the difference in times. We're talking almost 40 years ago. Was it hard to get people to focus on the importance of this and the severity of it because it appeared at first to be a disease that only afflicted gay people, gay men? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And in fact, it was a group that at the time, less so now, thank goodness, but more so then, that were really disenfranchised and was stigmatized. And then when it became clear that also injection drug users and commercial sex workers were getting infected, it was people were like running away from this disease of the disenfranchised. It was really unfortunate because at that time, what we were seeing was the tip of the iceberg. And only when we had a diagnostic test did we know how many people were infected and how prevalent this was and, and exploding throughout the world. It was unfortunate because, you know, Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, you know, a man who so, so many people, myself included, respected for many of the good things that he did, really did not use the bully pulpit of the presidency adequately enough to inform people of this emerging threat, despite the fact that people like myself were sounding the alarm in 1981, 1982, it just didn't happen. So I think that's something that 
is an unfortunate because it was it seemed like a gay it was a gay disease, disease. it was a gay man disease and they didn't even want to speak about it in fact unfortunately he didn't mention the word aids until his second term and it was only because of the insistence and the goading of his friend elizabeth taylor did he ever do that otherwise i'm not so sure he would have Obviously, as you say, you've made, you made that your signature cause, your mission. You ultimately won the Medal of Freedom for the work you did and have done on HIV/AIDS. Continue to do, but the politics of that moment were, in their own way, uh, almost as complex as the politics that you're facing right now. You became, you know, right now you're you're a target. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But you, back then, you became a target of the gay community. They were angry at you because there were experimental drugs that you weren't at liberty to release on a large scale. They were actually picketers. You were picketed. You were called a, a, a murderer. Tell me about that period. Well, that was tough, David. And what it was is that since so many people in the scientific community and the regulatory community and, and certainly in the highest levels of government did not want to pay attention to this emerging outbreak. I, as a scientist, was becoming visible in wanting to do something about this, you know, trying to develop drugs, trying to find out how one can stop this surging of infection. So I was a identifiable government figure, even though I was doing things that ultimately was for the good of the people at risk and who were infected. But since I was the only visible government figure who was speaking out, I became a target, you know, an inadvertent target. And that was really an amazing experience because it ultimately turned out to be a good news story. Because although I was trashed, you know, uh, particularly iconic figures like Larry Kramer came out yes. and called me a murderer. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a very famous writer at the yes. time and became a really good friend that I was, you know, very, very much uh, uh, attacked mostly by the gay community, ACT UP New York. And what I did was finally, I, I said, boy, these, these young men are probably suffering a lot. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so uh, iconoclastic and so theatrical about this. They wanted to gain attention to say, listen to us. We need to be part of the planning of what's happening to us. We need better access to clinical trials. We needed to have something that was user-friendly for us. So I made a, a decision. In fact, it was sort of sitting right in this room that I am right now when they came and demonstrated outside the window, right out here, literally five feet from me, that I said, you know, rather than, than just put them apart or get them arrested, which the police were getting ready to do, I said, why don't they come up to my office here and talk about it? Because what they were saying was making sense. They were very theatrical about it. But I said, if I were a young gay man, either infected or being anxious about it, I would be doing exactly the same thing that those guys were doing, mostly guys, but some women out there. I would be doing exactly the same thing. So that began the bonding that has lasted and strengthened to this day yeah. with the activist community. I said before we started rolling, you, you've been in that town for a long time, and one doesn't survive in that town for a long time without at least some innate political instincts that was also a wise thing to do. It was a humane thing to do and a wise thing to do. You helped spearhead President Bush's PEPFAR plan, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which ended up saving tens of millions of lives of people in, in Africa where HIV AIDS was rampant. I ask you about this in the context of today's debate because there is a, an inward turning in our country about things like global health initiatives and investing in the health of other countries and other people. Make the case for global health initiatives and why it's important for America to be yeah. as active as you were and have been in dealing with HIV AIDS. Well, there, there are two broad fundamental reasons why we need to do that. I mean, right now, we live in a global community given the ease of travel, given the international uh, um, uh, arrangements that are made, the international commitments that are made. So you can't function very well unless you realize that you are part of an international community. And what happens someplace else, particularly when you're dealing with my discipline of infectious diseases, 
it is unquestionable and without a doubt that it's ultimately going to influence you, test assess what's going on right now with COVID-19. So that's clear. The other thing is, I, I think, a sense of responsibility that we as a, a rich nation have um, uh, as an important component of the global community. And this is something that President George W. Bush um, absolutely realized. So when he sent me to Africa to determine the feasibility of doing a transforming program, because this was 2002 when he sent me, and the game-changing drug regimen started in 1996. So for six years, it was clear that people who were otherwise dying in a developed world now had access to drugs that essentially gave them the possibility of almost a normal lifespan. So in his own words, he told me and colleagues, he said, you know, as a rich nation, we have a moral responsibility to make sure that people don't suffer and die merely because of where they were born and the circumstances of where they are. So since we've developed and have available these life-saving drugs, let's figure out a way that we can bring treatment, prevention, and care for HIV to people in the developing world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And with that, we put together the PEPFAR program. But it was the president who really yeah. said that and, and, and no, initiated it. It's to it. his everlasting credit. Uh, yeah, it, absolutely. One of the great accomplishments of his time as president. In that context, and I, I don't want to steer you into deep water. I'd love to see you stay in your job here. We kind of need you. But the World Health Organization, obviously, they there were questions about how they handled the the beginning of this. But what is the value of the World Health Organization? And I presume you believe America should stay active in the World Health yeah. Organization. Yeah, I mean, the World Health Organization, as it exists now, I think everybody realizes is an imperfect organization. It's made some mistakes in the past. It's done some things that really have not been optimal for global health. But the world does need a global health organization because we need some central body that would help coordinate a response. Because as you mentioned just a moment ago, David, we, we, you know, we live in a global community and we interact so much every single day that what impacts one part of the globe almost certainly to a greater extent, greater or lesser degree, impacts another part. So the optimal thing in my mind is to improve it, make it better, make it much stronger so that the world can benefit from something that I believe we all need, even though they've made mistakes and they are not a perfect organization. Have you expressed your view on this to the president? Not specifically and explicitly to him, but my thoughts are pretty well understood at the level of the White House. He's a faithful listener of the Axe Files, so now he'll know directly from you how you feel about this. Over the course of your long tenure there at NIH, you battled a whole range of uh, epidemics, pandemics, SARS, the H1N1 swine flu. This one you and I met back in 2009, MERS, Ebola, Zika. You'd been warning for a long time about the possibility of a large-scale respiratory pandemic like the flu of 1918. Why were we so unprepared for it? You know, that's a good question, um, David, because in some respects, although it seems strange given the difficult time we're going through right now, we weren't that poorly prepared. As a matter of fact, at the time... Uh, when when you remember when we were doing pandemic preparedness plans during the uh, George W. Bush and Obama administration, um, we were paying considerable attention to how we would respond to an emerging infection. In fact, the Johns Hopkins Institution, when they judged all the different countries as to how prepared they were for a pandemic outbreak, they voted that the United States was better prepared than anybody. Even in that context, when you have something as extraordinary as this outbreak that has occurred now, which, as you mentioned quite correctly, is historic, it's the worst thing that we've experienced since 1918, that any kind of preparedness, uh, you know, when you think about it, likely is not going to be completely adequate. 
So we're, we're, we're hopefully getting better at it. Um, and I hope that this experience, as bad as it is, and the fact that it isn't even over, will trigger us to realize that there will be a next time. So we've got to use lessons learned now to be even better prepared than we were this time, because we were reasonably well prepared. We were just overcome by the magnitude of this and how it exploded on us in a period from nothing at the end of December to a global pandemic just a couple of months later. That is really unprecedented. Although you obviously feared this because you convened a group right away to talk about finding a vaccine. Right. Literally in the middle of January, you were convening a group at NIH, your vaccine unit, and you basically said, throw everything at it. Right. So even then, before we had a known case here, you had this fear. Why did you have this fear? Well, you know, I... As when people would ask me, David, over the decades, what's your worst fear? What's your worst nightmare? You know, and I would always say consistently, you know, it would be a virus that would jump species from an animal reservoir that we've never seen before. It would be a respiratory virus, and that would have two major characteristics. It would spread in a very, very efficient manner. And two, it would have a substantial degree of morbidity and mortality. You know, over the years, we've seen versions of one or the other of those two characteristics, but never both, at least not in our lifetime. And for example, remember when the bird flu threatened us, yes. it would jump from a chicken to a human, uh, the mortality of that was substantial, 30 to 40%, but it was very inefficient in going from human to human. In fact, it barely did that. And then in other circumstances in 2009, you know, you were there for that. Yes. I remember the, yes. We, yes. our meeting in the White House. You were there then where we had this pandemic flu of 2009 H1N1. The bad news is that it spread very efficiently from human to human. But the good news is that was somewhat of a wimpy virus. It did not really have a great degree of morbidity and mortality. So we escaped the bullet. Today, with COVID-19, this is the worst nightmare because we have a virus that's spectacularly efficient in going from human to human. And it yeah. does have a significant degree of morbidity, mortality, particularly in a subset of people who have underlying conditions. So as soon as I saw that possibility, I said, well, we better get a vaccine and we better start fast. Mm -hmm. And we started literally a few days after the, va the virus was identified by the Chinese. Just parenthetically, back, I remember... We did have a meeting at the White House about the H1N1 flu, but after an initial press conference there, every briefing was held over at the CDC. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I do very well. Would, would, would we be better served if health professionals just briefed the country on a daily basis? You know, David, there are different models that you follow for how you handle that. Certainly, the one that you mentioned is, is a time-honored uh, model of how you get information out. So I would have to agree with you that the best way to do that would be to have health professionals being doing the briefing. Are you worried? Have we suffered for the inconsistency of information that the public's been yeah. getting? You know, I have to be honest with you. I think a little bit, but but I, I, I'm hoping we're going to recover from that because right now, as you and I speak, there really is a bit of a change in that now uh, at, the, at the level of how we're handling uh, COVID-19. More of a uh, the independence of the health workers, not the health workers, but the public health officials speaking about it. I think that's going to evolve. You uh, shocked everybody a few weeks ago when you went before Congress and you said we could see 100,000 cases a day. We had 71,000 yesterday. Are we headed in the direction of 100,000 cases? You know, I hope not, David. I mean, it's certainly conceivable that will happen. I, I believe that the kinds of things that we're doing would mitigate against that. I don't want to see that, obviously. But, you know, remember, we plateaued at an unacceptably high level. We went way up and then came down at around 20,000 cases a day. And we just were stuck there for weeks and weeks until finally we had the resurgence in the southern states where we went up to, as you said, 30, 40, 50, 60, and most recently, 70. If you look at the other countries in the world, particularly the European Union, they went up to their peak and they came back down to a real baseline where they were having tens and hundreds of cases a day 
not tens of thousands of cases a day. So we really need to do better than that. And that's what I'm looking forward to, to finally get that curve down a baseline. So why, Dr. Fauci, why did the European Union have better results? Why does Korea, for example, I know there are they're a sixth of our size or something in terms of population, but they've had 300 deaths. We're north of 143,000 deaths. Now, why have these countries had better success? What have they done that we haven't done and that we have to do now? Well, I think it's a complexity of reasons, uh, David. I don't think it's something that could, you know, unidimensional. You could explain it all in, in one sentence, but some things are clear. And what is clear that when the world shut down, which is the only way to prevent the virus from going to person to person, is physical separation. When, when the European Union shut down, they shut down about 95% of their society shut down. Even though we shut down, as it were, we shut down only about 50% of the country. So we never really hit it with a hammer as opposed to what they did in Europe. And that I think that's come back to haunt us a bit because we never got to the point where we could bring it right down to the baseline. And then the other thing I think has to do with the good news, bad news about the American persona, as I call it. You know, a don't tell me what to do. You know, I'm an independent. The spirit that was the thing that formed our country about authority is, is okay, but don't push me with authority of not liking to listen to things like you really should be wearing a mask. You really should be physically separating. You really should be not going into crowds. We don't do that as well as some of the other countries do. Mm -hmm. And hopefully now that we're in a surge, that we realize that we're all in this together and we all have to contribute to really getting our arms around this and, and really suppressing that level. Yeah, the, the the states obviously that have are surging now are states that opened early and haven't been really rigorous about mask wearing. You think there should be a national standard? Should there be national rules about this? You know, I, I think there should be a national unanimity, and that this is highly, highly recommended. I know there are there's a, there are reasons, although I'm not so sure I agree with them, but there are reasons against mandating, because if you mandate, then you have to enforce. And then you get into a lot of complications of how you're going to enforce it. What I'd love to see is a uniform call of, all right, everybody, we absolutely should and must wear masks because we know that the countries that have done that had have done very, very well. And that's the reason why I'm actually pleased to see that just yesterday, the president came out and said, I think we should be wearing masks. I think that was a big step forward. Would it have been helpful if he had come forward earlier? On that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, David would have been. <laughs> yes, but but I'm but I'm glad of what we're seeing now. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. The flip side of this is, and this is why you've become a bit of a target again, tens of millions of Americans have lost their jobs. Many people have lost their businesses because of these closures. So you can understand their anguish and anger right. about this. That That is a different kind of pain that people are feeling. And I guess the fundamental point is that if we're back in the barrel again, that that's not going to help their jobs and businesses right. either. No. No, you, you make a very good point. I, I've seen a side of society uh, that I guess is understandable, but it's a little bit disturbing. You know, back in the day of HIV, when I was being criticized with some hate mail, it was more, you know, people calling me a, a gay lover and what the hell, you're wasting a lot of time on that. I mean, things that you would just, you know, push aside as being stupid people saying stupid things. It's really a magnitude different now because the amount of, of anger, I mean, as much as people, you know, inappropriately, I think, you know, make me somewhat of a hero, which I'm not a hero. I'm just doing my job. There are people who get really angry 
uh, at thinking that I'm interfering with their life because I'm pushing a public health agenda. I mean, the, the kind of not only hate mail, but actual serious threats against me are not, are not good. I don't really see how society does that. But yeah. Do. How are you, how do you process that? You know, it's tough. I mean, it's tough. I mean, serious threats against me, I mean, against my family, my daughters, my wife. I mean, really? Uh, is this the United States of America? But it's real. It really yeah. is real. Have you had to take on security measures yes, and so on? Is yes, a... yes. I've been given security. Right. It surfaces in other ways. You, you saw probably the other day that there's a move among some Republicans in Congress to oust Liz Cheney from the leadership of the Republican caucus, because she, in part because she defended you. Right. I mean, isn't that weird, David? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't make any sense that we're having. I mean, I guess it's just a reflection of the divisiveness in our society at the political level. I mean, this is a public health issue. And what we're talking about are fundamental principles of public health. And I don't see how people can have animosity to that. I could understand very well that you have to be careful because of the, of the, of the negative consequences of things like shutting down. That's understandable, and which is the reason why we are all trying to open up America again in a way that is safe, that we can do it in a measured fashion. But the hostility against public health issues is 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 difficult to not only understand but difficult to even process. Yeah, your uh, daughter Megan is a school teacher. Yes. Do you feel comfortable with her going back into the classroom in the fall? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've discussed this with her. She's very conscientious about the safety of the children she's responsible for, as well as her own safety. But my my feeling is that if you look at the broad umbrella. The default position, David, should be that we should try as best as possible to get the children back to school. That should be the default because of the negative downstream ripple effect, negative consequences of keeping them out of school sure. for their own psychological welfare. Yeah. That's a given. But having said that, we have to pay attention primarily to the safety and the health of the children and of the teachers. And there are going to be some parts of the country where there's no problem at all because the level of infection is so low that there's very little risk bringing the children back to school. But in those areas that are the hot areas where there's a lot of infection going on, then you better take a close look of what can we do to safeguard the health and the welfare of the children. That could be, you know, modifying how you do it, hybrid, part online, part in school, separating the classes by days, morning, afternoon physical separation, wearing masks. There's a lot of things that you can do as long as you make sure that you're very sensitive to the safety and the welfare of the children. So when my daughter is down now in New Orleans, they are leaning towards, given the activity down there, doing online at least right now to see what's going on. What their ultimate decision is going to be as you get into the beginning of the school year, I don't know. But there are a number of versions, yeah. The president keeps stressing that young people are, are largely impervious to this, but that is not completely true, for one thing. But they also can be spreaders right. in a really dangerous way, can't they? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the statistics, young people, um, clearly, when they get infected, they have less of a chance of getting a serious outcome. But there are a significant number of examples of young people you know, mostly millennials, but even children, uh, less so with children, but, but young people um, that when they do get infected, they do get a serious outcome, even though it's, it's a minority of them. The issue that I have that's important is that since so many people, 20 to 40% who get infected, have no symptoms at all, uh, young people, and these are particularly young people who are old enough to go to a bar, um, they feel if they get infected, that in fact, there's no consequences. They say, it's unlikely I'm going to get sick. So I'm just going to worry about myself. What they're failing to realize, and this is probably an innocent failure to realize, not pointing any blame, is that when they get infected or don't do anything to prevent themselves from getting infected, 
they are inadvertently propagating the pandemic. They are becoming part of this phenomenon of a pandemic. And even though they may not get sick, they may not have any symptoms, it is highly likely that they will infect someone who will then infect someone who will then be a vulnerable person who will suffer greatly from getting infected. So you've got to try, and, and I know it's difficult to get that message across, that when you get young people, particularly those who congregate at bars and those who are going in crowds and don't wear masks, that you are part of the problem if you do that, even though you think that you are in a vacuum if you get infected. So you want to appeal to the societal responsibility of young people to help us get out of this difficult situation that we're in with this global pandemic. I want to ask you about testing and the vaccine. Testing has been stressed from the beginning, but we have a situation now reported all over the country where people are getting tests and they're waiting seven days, 10 days, sometimes two weeks to get their results. What is the point of testing if you can't get results in proximity to when you take the test? Yeah, David, that's a very important issue. I can say we are doing much, much better now today as you and I speak than we were months ago with regarding testing. And we're going to be doing better as we go forward, as more tests become available. But you make a very important point, particularly when there are surges and a great demand on testing. We are not doing as well as we could do because, you know, you can theoretically say we have a lot of tests, but when you get on the phone and call up the people in the trenches, they are telling us exactly what you just said that under certain circumstances, you have to wait five, six, seven days to get the result of the test. And that obviates the actual underlying reason of getting the test. Exactly. Because if you don't know what the the result is 24 hours later, then contact tracing becomes irrelevant because what good is contact tracing if the person has been exposing people for the last five to seven days? So we need to correct that. How do we correct that? Do we need to marshal res- more resources? Yeah, we do. I mean, we, we, it's got to be more resources. we got to be getting the people on the ground, enough of them trained well enough to be able to do it and enough tests to be able to carry it out. You know, like I said, we're doing better than we were, but we've got to do even better. There was a move in Congress to devote more resources to that. The White House opposed it, I presume, over your objection. Well, you know, obviously I've been 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 calling for increased testing. So anything that goes against that, obviously, is not something that I would be happy with. On the vaccine, that's one thing that people seem to agree has gone well, this Operation Warp Speed. It's related to the effort that you began in your office. I spoke to Atul Gawande a few weeks ago here on, on this podcast, and he, he noted that this was a success. He gave you a lot of credit for it. But he said, realistically, even if a vaccine is found uh, that is safe by the end of this year, that it's probably a two-year proposition from when this started to really permeate the public. If you are successful in finding a vaccine by the end of this year, when do you think it's realistic to expect that we could return to some semblance of normalcy where everything's open, we're not wearing masks, we don't have the concerns that we have today? You know, I think it's going to be a gradual process, David, but I think your, your timetable that you just mentioned is close to being correct. Uh, The projection, and again, there's never a guarantee with successive vaccines, but I'm cautiously optimistic that we will be successful, that we would have a vaccine by the end of this year, the beginning of 2021. The good news that's different from previous vaccine efforts is that the companies, on the basis of a lot of investment on the part of the federal government, are going to be starting to make doses of vaccines much earlier than they normally would. They're taking a chance that the vaccine would be effective. So they're proceeding at risk. The risk is not to safety. The risk is not to scientific integrity. The risk is to money, that if it's unsuccessful, you're going to lose a lot of money. Although they're getting a lot of money, too, to do this, aren't they? Oh, you bet. I mean, the risk is to the federal government's money, <laughs> not not to their money, right. to be sure. Right. So, because what will happen is that we will then have, we will have doses available sooner than we normally would. The, the companies are telling us and I, we can, I hope we can believe them, but I'm, I'm, I'm putting some faith in it, that what they would do is that they would have doses to the tunes of tens of millions 
early in the year and up to hundreds of millions as we get well into 2021. And some companies say that even after a while, you could get as many as a billion doses. Mm -hmm. So the timetable you suggested of getting into 2021, well into the year, then I can think with a successful vaccine, if we could vaccinate the overwhelming majority of the population, we could start talking about real normality again. But it is going to be a gradual process. You're really talking about a year from now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On the vaccine, you hear a lot of people say, I mean, this is no one's ever done what you guys are doing now, the speed at which this is being done. There are safety concerns that people have about this. Why should people feel secure in taking this vaccine when it's being produced at such a rapid rate as compared to the normal protocol yeah. that you apply? Yeah. So, David, I, that's a great question. And I could understand the skepticism on the part of people. But, but the speed is not at the sacrifice of safety issues. The speed is the technologies that we have now that would make going into a clinical trial instead of waiting a year, we did it within a period of a, a month or two. That's the first time saver. The other is, is that taking a chance of investing in pre preparations that you would normally wait until you had an answer to question number one before you went to question number two and taking that risk, which is mostly a financial risk, cuts off a lot of time. The regulatory aspects, the FDA has been extremely good in getting things through without compromising safety that bureaucratically would have taken five, 10 times as long to do they're doing it in a real-time basis to get us the answer. So understandably, people are concerned, but safety is not being compromised. And are these companies that are involved, are they getting any special exemption from liability for, for doing this? There's nothing that we are doing other than what's already in place about what happens in a vaccine trial. If someone gets injured, the compensation arrangements that are being made but there's nothing specific right now that we're doing any different than with other vaccines that have been developed. Before we go, I, I just I do have to ask you just a little bit about the president. And, and I want to put it in a different in, in the context of your long experience. You've worked with a series of presidents on a series of crises. And I'm wondering how the experience has differed from president to president. Were you in close contact with President Bush, for example, on uh, on HIV? Yeah. AIDS. And and did you speak with President Obama on a regular basis about H1N1? How, right. how has that worked? You know, David, the uh, presidencies and its relationship to what I'm interested in, public health and infectious diseases, and the extent to which I get involved with a president really depends on circumstances that are beyond my control and the control of the president. It depends on what's going on. So, Go back and just go through. I mean, I had modest interaction, not much, but, but enough to be able to be familiar with him, with President Reagan. George H.W. Bush and I were friends. I mean, I had a relationship that he just took to me when he was vice president, and we had a good relationship. And I think that helped spur the support that we had early on. And he, he maintained contact with me, you know, almost right up until the time that he passed away. I mean, which was wonderful for me. What a yeah, man, yeah. you know, and then when we had President Clinton, he got very involved. I was not as much involved with him on a day by day basis because there was nothing new yeah, right. during his presidency that had me there. That changed when we got to George W. Bush, because that's when we did PEPFAR and the anthrax attacks. So I spent a lot of time with him and with Vice President Cheney in preparing the country for outbreaks that we felt were going to be deliberate. My biggest interaction with him was developing PEPFAR, which was, mm -hmm. as you said, his signature. When we got with President Obama, you know, it was very interesting because we had both the pandemic flu and we had Ebola. Ebola, yes. And you remember <laughs> that when we were in the middle of Ebola, you know, I was down in the sit room with, with President Obama a couple of times a week it was because I remember him t 
telling me almost facetiously, you know, Tony, I got children at the border. I got a war going on and I'm spending three days a week with you guys in the sit room <laughs> about a disease in Africa. What's wrong with that picture? But, <laughs> but that was something that I really did have the opportunity to deal with him. And now with COVID-19, obviously, as you know, uh, earlier on, particularly when we were dealing, I'm on the coronavirus task force. I meet with the vice president very frequently, like almost every day. If I'm not there physically, I'm speaking to him. And early on, we had a lot of interaction with with uh, President Trump, you know, particularly during the time we'll be giving frequent press conferences. That's a little bit less so now, but not completely discontinued. When was the last time you spoke with him? Either yesterday or the day before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spoke to him by phone. And how substantive are these conversations? No, they're good. I, I, I spoke to him. We were talking about, you know, is is getting up there and, and speaking about the uh, the uh, the outbreak in, in the press conference. So. The, the, the discussions are substantive. I can tell you early on when we were meeting, uh, when he made, I think, a really good decision to cut off the travel to China, number one. But number two, when we had to shut the government down, not the government, but the country, not the government, of course. When we said we had 15 days of closing, then we extended it another 30 days. Those were very intense discussions. Because that, that, that was a big deal. It feels like you've been managing a difficult situation here because you're focused on this pandemic. He's running for re-election. Obviously, the shutdown has impacted on the economy that he was going to run on. And so there's this tension. And you've become, it feels like, an inconvenience to the White House because you're out there and you're reporting what you see. And what you see doesn't conform with the scenario that they would like to portray. Is that a fair surmise? You know, in some respects it is, but I think the important thing that needs to be stated is that I stay completely out of any political issues. And that's probably one of the reasons why I survived. There's no more political issue than, <laughs> you know, than this right now. This right. is governing so, everything. So, so what, well, I, that's my point, David. I'm not disagreeing I with you. I think it's your problem, not just your point. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. I, I am trying my best to completely stay out of politics. But when you're in a situation that's politically charged, it's kind of difficult to completely not be impacted by it. I stay out of any personal involvement in politics, but I try to do my job, but I'm aware of the tension. The one thing that's interesting that I think people don't appreciate is that I do have a very good relationship with the president in the sense of no animosity at all. In fact, it's quite a good relationship. Yeah. Did you mention to him that maybe it isn't helpful when the White House sends out opposition research documents to try and besmirch you or his trade advisor writes uh, op-eds talking about trying to besmirch you? Yeah. Well, I don't like that. If I sit here and tell you that's okay, it's not okay. I think that's really bad news to do that. And have you mentioned that to the president? Uh, I think it's pretty clear around the White House that that's the situation. I don't think in some respects the president is not happy about that either. I can tell you he's not happy personally about that. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you as we go out, no one would necessarily believe that watching you, seeing you. You're 79 years old. You've been in your position for 36 years. How long can you go? How long? I mean, do you have a horizon line here or are you just going to go until you can't anymore? David, I'm going to go until, uh, and I think I have a pretty good gauge on this, but I also have good people around me, like my wife, who is very realistic. Also a, uh, a physician. A, a very a very accomplished uh, person here at the NIH, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, very uh, below the radar, but really accomplished. Uh, she has a, a very good way of, of being a reality check for me. And when I start to see that I'm not performing at the top level, uh, not wait till you get mediocre and then go. But as soon as I stop being top level, I- I'll step down. But right now, I think I'm as good as I've ever been. How are you going to cope with that? It seems like this is your life. I, I read that you-, you used to come home, they'd hold dinner for you and you'd come home and dinner would be at nine. Right, right. At night. I mean, obviously, this has been your life. That will be a hard day. You know, I think so. I, I-, I have to be realistic. I-, I think you're absolutely correct. But I would have to adjust to that and hopefully find something else that makes me passionate. And I think it's going to be in the arena of things that have to do with health and medicine. It may not be in this position, but I cannot see myself 
you know, I don't have any great hobbies to go off and do them. I'll just have to continue. Yeah. Not basketball, huh? <laughs> no, that's for sure, David. That's for sure. Tony Fauci, it's great to be with you. Thank you for your time and thank you for your service, which is so important at this critical juncture for the country. Right. Thank you very much, David, for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.